0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we step into the new year, we're turning to the book of James for our message series, Live the Truth. In a culture preaching the power of whatever feels right to you, it's time to set aside positive vibes for a truth you can stand on. Join us as we answer James' call to reject the latest feel-good message for a mature faith. As I get ready to, I want to start this introduction maybe with a bit of a scene change. It's a dramatic one. How many of you are familiar with the story, the Disney film, The Beauty and the Beast? Ever seen it before? Uh, if, you, if, if it's been a while since you had kids in the home, I forgive you if you haven't. I also forgive you if that's what you watched by yourself last night. That, it's okay. It's a compelling and beautiful tale um, with great music. Um, In Beauty and the Beast, if you remember, the movie opens with a scene that story unfolds told on, as it were, stained glass at first. And then the characters come to life, and from this misty, enchanted forest and palace, a tale is narrated that gives us the context for all of the rest of the movie. If you remember, the story goes like this. Once upon a time, in a faraway land, a young prince lived in a shining castle. Although he had everything his heart desired, the prince was spoiled, selfish, and unkind. No, it's not a story about your spouse. It's on. It keeps going. But then, one winter's night, an old beggar woman came to the castle and offered him What? Quiz? A single red rose. In return for shelter from the bitter cold, repulsed by her haggard appearance, the prince sneered at the gift and turned the old woman away. But she warned him not to be deceived by appearances, for beauty is found within And when he dismissed her again, the old woman's ugliness melted away to reveal a beautiful enchantress. The prince tried to apologize, but it was too late for she had seen that there was no love in his heart. And as punishment, she transformed him into a hideous beast and placed a powerful spell on the castle and all who lived there. It's a compelling story, isn't it? Some of you are going to watch this today. (laughs) Maybe we should redeem the time and move along here. But uh, it's compelling to each of us, I think, because it resonates with something that maybe we've even experienced parts of in our own life. We yearn and long to be known and seen for who we really are, and we feel like people have missed that at times, either because of the way we look or the way we dress or the things we have or our school performance or athletic performance or who our family is or how our family behaves. Okay, especially how our family behaves. And there's lots of reasons why we feel like I just, I don't think the world sees who I truly am. And so we resonate with this idea of this trick that this enchantress played on the prince to expose that what was inside of him was not love. And he deserved for that hideous nature to be seen on the outside. Of course, the story goes on about how that beast was transformed. Perhaps that's another reason why this story is compelling. It holds a mirror up to our own lives. And how often do we make snap judgments of other people? How often do we dismiss a person who seems to have nothing to offer? Perhaps I'm a beast disguised as a person. Our passage in Scripture today confronts us with this line of thinking. That what's true on the inside of someone ought to be seen. That we ought to be treating others the way that they truly are. For who they truly are. Ultimately, for how God truly feels about who he truly created them to be. We'll see that in the book of James chapter 2. So I invite you to open your Bibles with me to James chapter 2 as we can continue the series in the first half of James, looking at living and true faith. We want to live in truth, not just how we want to live. And James is a powerful epistle, a letter to a people the Jewish Christians who had lived in Jerusalem, we've talked about this, right? Who then, because of persecution from religious leaders and the wealthy class in town who didn't want their ecosystem disrupted, started persecuting and jailing and uh, closing down the businesses of these Jewish Christians and killing their leaders and imprisoning their families. And so they scattered across the known world, taking with them only what they had, leaving all of their business prospects behind, settling in cities across the Mediterranean region. And as refugees, James writes to them, the diaspora of Jewish Christians, with a letter on how they ought to be living in mature faith, in real truth. Last week, we looked at how mature faith puts possessions in their proper place. And James today comes back to that concept of wealth, but he kind of picks a new trajectory to address something that might be popping up in their church gatherings and within their hearts. So James chapter 2 verse 1 says this. My brothers, he's addressing his family, sisters, friends, you're my family, listen to me. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says, brother, show no partiality. James starts off with a strong warning. Don't show partiality. We might say it this way: mature faith doesn't show favoritism. Mature faith shows no favoritism. We understand the idea of favoritism, right? I don't think I have to explain this too much, but just to make sure we're all on the same page, I think we could say favoritism confidently is this. Treating others best who can benefit me the most. Treating others best who can benefit me the most. And as you go through life, maybe when you've met other people, maybe you come across them in the pickup line, or drop-off line at school, you've been uh, there at the grocery store waiting anxiously for them to finish checking out all 57 items in their 15-item-or-less aisle. And you've been working alongside them in the cube farm or annoyed at the way they use or don't use Zoom lately. And in the meantime, as you've interacted with people, we make judgments about them. We feel a way toward them. How do you treat or evaluate or measure the people in your life? What is it that gives you the way, the cue to how you respond to who they really are. There are lots of ways people show favoritism based on looks, personality, wealth, race, age, language, nation of origin. And James teaches that a believer in Jesus walking in faith doesn't show favoritism. And he launches into an example to back this all up. He creates a story, much like the tale spawned in Beauty and the Beast, where a group of Christians are assembling together and showing favoritism, exposing the way they really, truly feel in their heart about others. So this is what he says. He says, "For in verse 2, If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you, stand over there. Sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James creates a story that we can imagine, that we can kind of see playing out. But also because of the time, 2,000 years of history, and the way culture and settings have changed, I think we often misunderstand some of the picture that James is sharing. There's a tendency in our minds to overwrite and rewrite the way it really happened, bringing our context and our understanding and our habits and our familiarity back in time. And so we tend to imagine a modern worship setting. And there's hazers and guitars and a PA system and the same chairs arranged in rows facing the stage. That's what we picture in mind when we think of Christians assembling together. And so the story has a different twist when we imagine that kind of setting. But James, 2,000 years ago, talking to a group of scattered refugees, had a different picture in mind. So maybe let's fine-tune our image. We need to mentally place ourselves in a house, not a worship center. It would have been a place where hospitality would have been expected for visitors. And it may not have been the greatest house either. Remember, we're talking to the diaspora of Jewish refugees. These people had left their established homes, their family homes, where they had kind of built on and built on and built on, and grandma was next door, and grandpa was next door, and aunt and uncles were across the yard, and we had this nice big villa, perhaps, where we kept adding rooms onto as a family group. And we've been forced out of that comfort and that safety and that network. We could only bring with us what we could bring with us. And they didn't have U-Haul. And so what do we have? Well, it's whatever place we could find in town. On the outskirts, it was, it was less put together. The paint still hadn't been t- quite to our tasting. And, and the furniture was cobbled together from scraps we could find on the side of the road. And we hadn't really gotten the business up and going yet because we're the new merchant in town and somebody else is known by everyone. And, and so we don't have a lot to offer, but what we do is this faith. And as we're trying to live that faith out, people start noticing and they want to come check out what's going on. And so they're showing up to our thrown together house that makes us ache for what we used to have. And they walk through our doors to see the faith we share. So as we correctly picture this gathering, we imagine the way a host or a friend of that host would have been welcoming people into this gathering and then getting them situated. Oh, yes, thank you for bringing that casserole. It's lovely. You can set it over there, right? And the idea here is The person hosting is allowing the influence of the culture, the influence of their need, the influence of their fears to define how they're welcoming people into their assembly far more than the new life and the new power and the new identity they have in Jesus. And so a rich man walks in. In English, he's defined as what? Wearing a gold ring and fine clothing and that's a fine translation, but James actually uses some more poetic terms in his original language, and he's, he's creating this picture that this man, the phrase is literally, his fingers are dripping with gold. He's got gold fingers. He's got so much jewelry on. He has so much wealth that he wants to show off to the community that he's literally covered in it, and his clothes aren't just clean, which is lovely. They're shining. He's been carried here. He's Never had to get down in the dirt. The dust of the street isn't on his clothes. They're a luxury brand, and they're untarnished. And the second man comes in. Man, I mean, his clothes are so torn up and tattered. It smells like he's been sleeping in the sewer gutters. And all this is taking place in the wider context of a Roman world whose social structures governed were governed by something called the patron-client relationship. And if you remember history class, the patron-client relationship went like this. There were wealthy people in town who had all the money, all the influence, and all the political power, if you will. And then there was everybody else, the vast majority of the people in the town, who were working class, tradespeople or the poor. And those people would come to these wealthy patrons and ask them to come under their patronage and say, I'm a baker. I sell the best bread for miles. Let me prove it to you. Could you buy bread for me? I will be the person who makes all the bread for all of your big feasts that you throw to show off all of your wealth and influence and if you like what I've got, you can keep buying from me and you can tell all your friends about my product and maybe I'll get better and you'll get better because you've got the best bread at your parties and I've got a client buying my bread and giving me advertising and if the other guy across town sues me because I stole his trade secrets, which incidentally I did, you're going to protect me in court because you've got all this power right? Like that's the patron-client relationship that plays out across many clients and many classes of people. And so the cl- clients who are uh, needing the patron's assistance feel helped, and the patrons who are wanting an army of people adoring them and coming to their feast and uh, kind of supporting them and making them look influential are also helped. The patron-client relationship by this point in Roman cultural history had been established, codified in law for 600 years. That was how business and life happened. So, when a group of Christians, refugees from their hometown, desperate to be able to set up shop and get started in a new place, without the kind of advantages they came from, of a large network to support them and protect them and defend them, are hosting a gathering in a house that probably isn't their dream house. They're hoping that they can make this thing better. They're dreaming about what God might do. And the little bit of love they're showing to the little bit of people around them is starting to make people ask questions. This doesn't quite fit our patron-client situation here. These people are just radically loving people all over the place. What's going on? And a patron drops by. A man dripping in gold with shining clothing walks into their gathering. And two possibilities exist. Perhaps some of the Christians there are already among his clients. He's their ticket to a better life. So they better treat him like the best guy in town. They need to keep their spot on his team. Or nobody's there, his client. In fact, nobody there has a patron. And this guy might be their chance for success. This guy might be their chance for their church to find success. If this guy brings their church gathering and and the gospel into credibility in the Roman society and culture, who knows what might happen? That's the way they're thinking. It's as if we're dreaming here together today about all that God might do. We're worried about how it's going to happen, and things have been tough lately because, you know, 2020 and 2021 and, well, goodness, 2022, and Elon Musk walks in the door. He didn't walk. He was riding one of his new hover things, right? And all of a sudden, the wheels start turning, and I'm not the greatest business guy, I didn't get in on any of the stocks at any of the right times. But if we can get Elon on board with what we're doing, guys, who knows what God might do, right? Like, we're going to be finance, We're going to have influence. Everyone's going to know about us. We are going to be on every headline. We are going to be all driving Teslas with the gospel to the world, right? Like, who knows? And so what do we, we got to take care of them. Right? We got to put them in the best spot and, and we're going to, Get our best ushers and greeters and and the most friendly people, and someone's gonna take him out to lunch and they're gonna buy his lunch, which is ridiculous, right? Like, okay, and we're gonna cater to this guy, because who knows? Even today, outside of a patron client relationship, we know that that that's what our instincts, that's what logic tells us to do. But then at the same time, this other person walks into our worship gathering, right? They're weird, they smell bad. We're making a scene, and the place isn't quite big enough for us to distract the rich guy from what's going on over there. And we're like, shoot, he's going to ruin everything. Somebody get him out of here. Put him in the back. He's going to ruin our shop. This early church had a crisis. Or are we going to allow the safety of the patron-client relationship, the safety of how we view a chance for a foothold, the chance to feed our kids... To define how we treat other people, how are we going to treat them the way the gospel that's remade us is leading us to? Wrongly, in the story, James Weaves, the church has jumped at this opportunity for a powerful ally and seated him at the place of honor while they seat the poor man in the place of disgrace. They've thought to themselves, perhaps, hear this irony. With this patron on our side, who can be against us? Church, I wish I could say that 2,000 years after James started to correct that impulse in the hearts and lives of believers, the church had learned that lesson. Is it God on our side who can be against us, or is it Popularity or branding or wealth or resources or political power or, or who are we courting and going after and depending on to allow God's kingdom to be advanced. James says mature faith doesn't show favoritism. It shows no favoritism. Instead, it values the glory of God. In James' imagine scenario here, the assembled believers have failed to notice the one person who is there that put everything else, every other influence, every other power to shame. He points him out when he says, show no partiality for you hold the faith as you hold the faith. In our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Literally, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the glory. He is reminding, even in that command, the believers, that where you are as a believer in Christ and as an assembly of people, Jesus is there with you. He is the God of glory. You don't need somebody's wealth in order to give you what you want. The Lord of glory is there with you. Notice him. See him in that gathering. And then see each person in that gathering with equality and light of who Jesus is. Believers are to live with their focus so fixed on the supreme worth and glory of God that all other competing advantages diminish. And James goes on to say in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers... Hold up, I love you guys still, but this is a problem. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. He says, are not the rich... The ones who oppress you? and The ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? He's saying, listen, immature faith sees potential influence and comfort of human patrons, of wealth, of a better life. Another way. But mature faith sees Jesus, the glory of God, primarily. That's our focus. And then, as an echo, that glory reflected in all of his children. And we won't show favoritism when we see Jesus as supreme over everything wealth, status, influence, everything. Besides, beyond the fact that even the poor are given the riches of God's forever inheritance, that far outweighs anything they have or don't have now. James just points out the logic. I'm like, guys, the rich are against you at every turn. They're the ones who kicked you out of Jerusalem. They're the ones dragging you into court to make sure you don't have chances now. Why are you courting the people who are against God when the God of glory is on your side? The gospel stands in opposition to a world of injustice. The gospel puts us on a level playing field. So that whether you drove here in a Lamborghini or needed to borrow money for a bus fare or because of your failing health couldn't even get here to begin with, the gospel labels us all the same. Created in God's image, marvelously made, but fallen from grace because of sin and need of a savior. But God rescues us, gives us the chance to be made alive in him by grace through faith. The point isn't to demonize the rich or glorify those who don't have money, but rather to see the true person, to see with eyes of faith, to see the soul that God has made, the future that God provides through whatever the present moment surfaces. He goes on to say in verse 8, If you all really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, You shall love the neighbor as yourself, then you're doing well. James correlates this warning against favoritism back to what he calls the royal law. It's going to be called the law of liberty in just a few minutes. And we talked about it last week. It's that Old Testament ethic that Jesus refined. That this is what God is all about. Loving him and loving your neighbor. And James argues that we are fulfilling the heart of God to love our neighbor generally, Whenever we refuse to show favoritism specifically, we're honoring that heart of God. And so mature faith doesn't just value the glory of God against all else. It works to love all people. It works to love all people. And as we're loving all people, James says in verse 10, for as you're keeping this law, as you're loving all people, whoever keeps the whole law but fails Sorry, verse 9. But if you show partiality, if you show favoritism, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Speak and act as those who are to be judged under that law of liberty. James isn't pulling any punches here. He's calling out believers who might abandon their first love of glory, trying to settle for attention and status in the world as they can find it. And in that cutthroat environment, it is tempting to try to think of yourself and act as if you're better than everybody. Because you want the attention and you want to succeed and you want to beat out the people around you so that you can be perceived as the most successful, so that you can get what you most want peace and joy and contentment. But here we see that even in simply showing favoritism, ultimately we fall short of that royal law that we're called to. And James makes the argument if you fall short in any way, you're still one who has fallen short as guilty as anyone. That creates a problem with you and the only one who can complete you, God. So James says, one sin is enough to be liable. So since you know you are, live and speak and act knowing you're going to be held to that standard, the need to love others. You'll be judged under that law. What's that bring us to want to do? makes us want to recognize our need for grace. To recognize our need for grace. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians that we need to make it our aim to please him. Just like we're living as if we're under that law, we need to make it our aim to please him because we'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Doesn't that seem impossibly hard to do? To commit no sins against the law of love that God has given to us. That's what we talked about today in our doctrinal statement. That obedience to the law looks like personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience to all that God has done. Anything he says not to do, you should never do. Anything he says you must do, you must always do. And when that's the standard, what we all realize is we're all on the same side of that team. We've all fallen short. So we all need grace. And that gives us the opportunity to show grace and no favoritism. Because we all alike need God's grace. We all alike need His love and kindness. And having received such love and kindness, isn't it just our natural response then to show that kind of love and kindness to everyone, no matter what they present to us? James closes by saying, judgment is without mercy in verse 13. Judgment is is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. He's calling out, if you're living with favoritism, if you're not showing mercy and kindness and love to everybody, regardless of what they have to offer you, you're proving that you've never experienced mercy. You're proving that you'll be judged according to a law, not according to grace. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy wins over judgment according to the law. We celebrate as believers the mercy of Christ who gave his life for us so that we wouldn't be judged by the law of how we could follow God's ways, but instead could be accepted because the one who did follow God gave us his perfection, paid for our sins, and offers us a way to know him and be alive with him forever. So if we don't show mercy, we demonstrate we haven't received mercy. And if we do show favoritism, we demonstrate we haven't ever known God's grace. We want God's mercy to flow out of us. David Platt said it this way, A pastor, God's mercy in you has to flow from you. Church, may I suggest two applications. Don't measure people by what they can give to you. Don't measure people by what they can give to you. That's not what you hold them to. If it's your kids, it's not how they can behave well enough for you. If it's your spouse, it's not how they can love you best for you. If it's your coworkers, on down the line, don't measure people by what they can give to you instead. Second, measure people by what God has given you. Measure people by what God has given you. God treated others according to how he could benefit them. Specifically, in my case, he treated me how he could glorify himself by benefiting me, giving me life, making me a co-heir with Christ, and he's done that with you, with all of us. Offered us a chance to be right with him forever and rich in his glory for all of time alive and at peace with him, the way we were meant to be. As people defined by the mercy of God, we ought to define our relationships with others by that same mercy and kindness. As people who are seen and loved by God, we ought to see and love the strokes of divine beauty we see in every person. We are called to be a people who are remade into such a glorious future that we can't possibly be bothered by trivial things like what someone has to offer us here and now, by the way they could help our life here and now. Instead, we only see the way God has reshaped our life, has the power to do all that he will, and has created those others for his glory as well. Let's live lives that proclaim our faith and that hope together. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org to introduce yourself today.